Hello and welcome to Wilson and Windsor's Libertadores podcast, the only English language podcast that covers the Libertadores extensively week in, week out. And we've actually got this week a little bit of a Christmas special on the Wilson and Windsor Libertadores podcast. The 2019 Libertadores, of course, is over with Flamengo lifting the trophy. But there was uh, there was plenty to chew on. We talk about in this podcast. We talked about uh, Flamengo and the the Club World Cup and the Club World Cup final against Liverpool on Saturday, and we chewed the fat on on the Libertadores group stages in 2020. We talked River, Boca, Gachado, South American politics, and plenty more besides. On the pods this week, of course, I was joined by Mister Oliver Wilson. Ollie, that was a, a worthy pod. I feel. That was uh, definitely a fun one. Uh, I think we've uh, stretched our South American footballing muscles, so to speak, with that too. There's been a bit of research has got to go on into this because it's not all about the games this week. It's a bit more about the technical side. Although I did like how you teed it up as the week in, week out. And we probably haven't had one for about, what, three, four weeks at least now. But, you know. Week in, week out with the little bracket of what there are games on. It's the Christmas special. That's what it is. This is the, as you say, it's the uh, it's the holiday special, which is going to end on a joyous note and everybody being happy and we're all singing carols around the fire at the end of it. Ah, oh, beautiful. Boca and River fans, arm in arm, around the fire this Christmas, probably. Mm, probably, you know, I think <laughs> arm in arm and then the other arm is holding a knife to each other's chest just to make sure there's no funny business. But that's about as close and comfortable as they generally like to get to each other, particularly when they're squaring off. Um, no, great podcast. Uh, there's a lot to hear from from Nico talking about a fair bit of Boca. Uh, we also have Andy Brassel, European football expert, talking a little bit about Jorge Jesus. We've got the FIFA Club World Cup. Um, think Club World Championship Club the, Cup the, World the Championship. Flint, Michigan, Mega Bowl yeah. Club World <laughs> Mega Cup. Uh, End of the World World Champion Club Cup World. Yeah, it's that, it's, that's a, the one. it's apparently yeah. the biggest club tournament in the on the planet. I'm told by FIFA in this statement that they've asked me to read. So it's obviously means a lot to South American football, whether it means as much to Liverpool fans. Well, you'll be able to give us the insight on the, on that Windsor for sure. Um, as we get ready for Flamengo against Liverpool squaring off um, and some interesting semi-finals, to be honest, before that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. And it's, it's all about the, uh, the final between Liverpool and Flamengo. So yeah. Anything else we covered in the, in the pod, Oli? Oh, the draw for next year. Ah, of course, of course. The 2020 Libertadores draw, which uh, raised some really interesting games, actually. Flamenco, the Libertadores champions against Independiente del Valle, who won the Copa Sudamericana. The people's uh, champions. Tough, absolutely. <laughs> tough group for for River, Altitude, Gachado, Bocas, Easier draw, and plenty more besides. So, yeah, curl up around the Christmas tree and listen to a little Christmas present from Wilson and Windsor's Libertadores podcast. Probably does the job. Curl up around a Christmas tree. The most awkward place to curl up around with needles and pins and stuff, man. Jeez. <laughs> Remind me never we to come over to your house on Christmas Day. Not that... Wilson, we need to keep this in just so people can see how much you bully me, you know? Oh. That was, I, thought that, I thought that metaphor was... <laughs> I was going to say curl up around the fire, but that's even... I think... How would you... What do you do? Sit near the Christmas tree then, Ollie? I don't, no, the Christmas tree goes in the corner of the room, doesn't it? Uh, in my historically in my family, I don't know. It's more, Front and more sort of, it's more central in the uh, yeah. It's more it's more central in the room. Curl up around the Christmas tree. I, you know what? I'm gonna stick by that. I think that's a, I think that's fair. Okay, uh, I will I will be polling some people throughout the day to find out before we meet for lunch. <laughs> okay, or I mean I could have said sit 
by the Christmas tree at a respectable distance <laughs> so you don't get poked by any of the little spikes. And uh, yeah, enjoy the Wilson and Windsor Christmas special Libertadores podcast. That is the ultimate 2019-2020 PC Christmas safety advice <laughs> for being involved with family and loved ones around a Christmas tree. Absolutely. That's, that's Boys what... and girls, ladies and gentlemen, everyone in between, uh, yeah, <laughs> sit, sit, sit by your Christmas or your tree of choice during this festive period. Yeah, I'm not here to make judgments about trees. Any tree can work for your festive period. It's not about Christmas. It's about everything. Yeah, let's, uh, let's keep it down the straight and narrow and not offend safe anybody. Safe ground, safe ground, yeah. <laughs> Enjoy the podcast. <laughs> Takes it down, takes the strike on, and fires Boca in front. Might be a second one here for Bruno Enrique. Into the bottom corner, double delight on the night for Flamengo. Decisive from 12 yards, and the Brazilians are well and truly in the driving seat now. This is McAllister to go. It took an inflection. You can't take it away from the debutant. He's a, he was a great player. He's not the best in the world, but he was a great player, and he's beloved by Boca. That's what you say. Not yeah, but there's no there's no middle middle ground. Isn't really sexy these days, is it, Oli? Yeah, I know, but we're not really doing a 24-hour news podcast with adverts, and uh, we don't we don't need the sexiness. We need the nice. dry. Dry, mundane analysis and reality of uh, of what's going on. Pure, long-form, bitty content, that's what we're after. Yeah, that and that dismissive kind of, yeah, but that's just what football is, isn't it? You know, that line sure. every every four to five minutes just to kill off. It's all about money, that's what football is, to oh, kill off the yeah. debate. Bar humbug. <laughs> I've got to say, Ollie, this is um, a little bit early than I would usually care to go to work. Uh, you know, yeah, not- it's... You know, for know. a humble for a humble free sports freelancer, not not much of your work comes at nine a.m. in the morning. No, but uh, you've done the uh, the odd Japanese game down in London before, where you have to be there for five o'clock in the morning, and um, you know we have rogue time schedules that get thrown our way. Look, I'm a seven seven thirty getting up in the morning regular man at the moment, regardless Military. of the bedtime. So, no, very impressive, Wilson. Yeah, well, we've all done we've done a fresh share of tennis over the years as well, which um, oh, yeah. suck the life out of you at two in the morning. So. Yeah, well, yeah, nine a.m. is uh, six days before Christmas is is fairly respectable. Oh yeah, Merry Christmas and season's greetings, man. I should have probably started the conversation with that to you, to be honest. And likewise, Mr. Wilson, likewise. Uh, yeah, it's uh, yeah six days to Christmas and Merry Christmas to everyone. Are you ready? Have you got the um, the Flamengo shirt kind of packed up and ready to give to the old man and stuff like that? Or <laughs> No, I, I got an Independiente del Valle shirt, Ollie, on the black market. If so you found the pink shirt, I would be genuinely livid if you'd found one and hadn't been able to tell me where you got it. <laughs> I've, actually, I've actually got a Christmas present for you, Ollie, and it's lucky we're meeting later today because it's a Christmas present that I didn't personally purchase, but uh, I am the mere messenger, but I will be delivering a Christmas present to you a little bit later on today. <laughs> In person, would you believe? I know, Wilson we actually... Wins get... a, Wilson and Windsor face-to-face later on today. But we're, we're not recording a podcast face-to-face because that's just not the way it's done. Not at nine <laughs> o'clock in the morning, especially. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely not. No, we don't live contrary to popular opinion in bunk beds above each other somewhere in London. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, Flamengo, Mr. Wilson, in the Club World Cup, of course, after lifting the Libertadores. They also won the league title. This has the potential to be the most ridiculous month or pretty much just less than a month for Flamengo in their history, really. You know, they could win a historic treble in, in less than 30 days. 
Well, the Libertadores was the historic moment anyway. So I think you can look at this month is already right up there with anything that has happened in the club's history. You then add a league title onto it and the way they've won it with, I mean, we were, we were chatting back in October about how the Brazilian press had handed before the Copa America the league title to Palmeiras because they were six points clear, I think, going into that South American winter break. Yep. And then Flamengo kind of went, nah, we're not having that. Big Phil Scolari messed the bed up at Palmeiras. They lost all composure and Flamengo just went, right, Jorge Jesus, you're the man. We're going to play attacking football. Let's storm the league. And they came back and, and demolished everyone in their path, both in the league and in the Libertadores. But if they beat, if, it's a big if, but if they beat Liverpool, yeah, it's it's usurps anything surely that the club's ever done in its history. I think so, certainly. We will talk, uh, we will give a, you know, a good preview to that Flamengo-Liverpool final in the Club World Cup on Saturday in due course. But just, just very briefly, Oli, Jorge Jesus is essentially, you said it, you said it right. The Libertadores was the moment. That was the historical moment, especially in the way they won it to win it for the second time in their history, the first time since 1981. The league title was just the icing on the cake and to do, you know, to pick up that double within the space of a couple of days was astonishing. But now... You know, to win the Club World Cup and complete this unbelievable treble. For Georgia Jesus, who only arrived in the summer, he is playing for all time. I mean, he's already won the Libertadores, but this would be really cementing his legacy in a quite incredible way, were he uh, to beat Liverpool on Saturday. Well, do you consider that I've completed Brazilian football then? It's, yes. It's, it's like the video game. Okay, I've done that onto the next level, which is it's kind of what he's done in six months. But yeah, I put... I put a lot of the credit down to Jesus, the style that he's brought in, the quality of player that he brought in as well when he arrived at the club. But it is a club that was set up for success. I mean, the reason why Jesus is in there, because this Flamengo side already felt that it was financially and, and certainly with the personnel they had equipped to be able to compete on every single front. So as as much as I like Jesus, it's not as impressive what he's done as maybe a Gachado, but you're certainly right in that he has... he's. He's done the job, the job, in six months. Um, the world is kind of, in theory, his oyster. Yeah, I do think it is certainly worth noting. And I'm not saying that all Flamengo's success now should come with an asterisk saying they spent a shitload of money and they've got the best players in Brazil and the best players in South America. But it's certainly worth, I think, adding as a little, uh, as, a, as a couple of bullet points that, as you say, the squad was there. They comfortably had the best squad in the Libertadores. So, Jorge Jesus, as you said, he did the job, but he, you know, he wasn't... Uh, I wouldn't say he's a revolutionary. He's just, um, you know, he's he's picked up the big silverware where it matters. And in terms of when you say, is that Brazilian football ticked off? I was thinking today about football and timing and, and, and Pochettino. Actually, I was reading something about Pochettino today. It is so important, I think. I think football fans are really guilty of remembering the last thing that happened. And we do because it, football is so... Um, you know, it's so instantaneous now and things move on so quickly. But people really do remember how things ended for you at a club. And it is difficult and delicate to time things correctly. And I think Georgia Jesus, I don't want to tell Flamengo fans he's definitely going to leave if, if, if Flamengo beat Liverpool. But there's a case to be made. I know he only would have been there for six months. But if you leave after that, everything is totally untarnished. And, you know, I know the Pochettino example, it's not a direct comparison, of course. But people will always think about that last six months of Pochettino's reign. And the fact that it, it, it went a little bit sour. And I just wonder whether George Jesus is thinking, you know, you, you, the old adage, you, you quit while you're ahead. You quit while you're mm. right out on top. 
Well, this is the thing that we've discussed with Gachado, of his stock will never really be higher, even after the Libertadores loss. So why do you not try and cash in your chips that you've built up now and mm. use them to go to a bigger high rollers table, so to speak? Yeah. Uh, and Jesus may be looking at it this way. I mean, I don't, I don't want to name drop here, uh, Windsor, but I, I did reach out and th- nothing to do with the podcast initially, but the messages he sent me were decent enough that I was like, man, can we use this on our, on our, as an audio drop? Uh, Andy Brassel, who's a phenomenal European football expert, knows a lot about Portuguese football. I was chatting to him about it and said, why would you not, if you're Jesus, want to stick around in South America? Because at the end of the day, he's got the world at his feet on that continent. He's got the money. He's got everything. And uh, and Andy came up or was telling me that basically Jesus has his eyes only on big managerial jobs in Portugal. And very much, much like I think Mourinho's using Tottenham at the moment, Jesus is using Flamengo as a great stepping stone to just kind of wipe the slate clean of what's happened in Portugal go there, be successful, and then look for a way to get back as quickly as possible. This is what Andy had to say about the whole thing. So I suppose the most noticeable thing about Jesus is uh, since he's been in Flamengo, and in fact, since he left Portugal in the, in the first place to go to the Middle East, he's still in the newspapers and in the media a lot um, because he doesn't want to uh, break that link with Portugal. Bear in mind, like it's, it's like a year since he... Um, coached abroad for for the first time, so he's always at pains to stress that Portugal is still in his mind, and he would like to come back at some point. It won't be Benfica, one because he's managed Sporting since, so I think that does make a, a difference to a degree. Um, but two, more importantly, because Bruno Lage is is there and is is doing such a fantastic job and is now contracted up to to the absolute hill. I don't think Sporting could afford him. So I wonder if Sergio Conceição gets a good job in Italy at some point, and for his sake, that would be a really good thing. I wonder if um, he completes the set of Ostrich Grandes, the big three, and ends up at Porto at some point. I-, I would love to see that, just for the giggles. Yeah, it just seems a little odd, because obviously Flamengo is set up for success right now, and Jesus kind of has the world at his feet in terms of South American football. Whereas biding your time and waiting then for that big job to come back in, in Portugal, just, I don't know, it 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 seems slightly almost naive and certainly very f- kind of one-way filtered in terms of your thought process. Whereas if he actually looked at Flamengo as a real long term, you know, it, he could run the continent basically down there. Yeah, it is a funny thing with Jesus, but Portugal is the aim um, eventually again because, I mean, I, I don't think he would have left Portugal in, in the first place I mean, if, if he hadn't have had to. And it, so it's just really a case of waiting for the the, the job to, to open up. Um, Flamengo is a, is, a, is a big deal to him, but he's been so at pains to say, oh, Flamengo's like as, as, as big a club as any I've managed. It's sort of like he's, protesting a little bit too much um so i i I think he's he's already a legend there for for what he's done he's um changed the view and perception of of foreign coaches in 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 brazil by all accounts so i kind of wonder if it can get much better for him than there but again it just depends about when the right job is available because he's not going to go back and manage Braga or Rio Ave or anything like that. It has to be 
one of the one of the absolute biggies. Yeah, big thanks to Andy for uh, giving us a little bit of time on that brief moment in time, but still uh, a bit of time anyway. And uh, and yeah, it is it is interesting that he does just have such a blinkered view of I want to get back to Portugal and take the big jobs when when he's on a continent where he's I, I, it it blows my mind the idea of what drives you. You know when you look at players taking money over potential trophies or or mm. managers looking for top 4 rather than looking for a league cup and things like that. And and Jesus is in a position where he can have trophies and he can have well anything he wants, but he's still he's just so desperate to get back to one of the big jobs in Portugal. Yeah, it it is amazing like you could say he could stay at Flamengo and he could have the best squad on the continent. He could have a blank checkbook pretty much because of the money they've generated this year and, and their fan base and the merchandise and everything. He could live in the biggest penthouse in Rio, Oli, overlooking the beach. He could have all that. And yet, is it just the monopoly of European football is so large that people can't see beyond that? And even when you're in South America now, I know a lot of players go to the MLS and then to Europe or just to the MLS from South America, but... European football is just it is just so dominant. It is so dominant that that will always, bar something absolutely astonishing in the next generation or two, be be the big draw. Well, the the money's there, the the scouting is there. That means the best players some slip through the net, but generally the best players get nicked away from most clubs elsewhere around the world, particularly in South America. The so many of the big clubs have almost permanently based scouts out there, making sure they keep an eye on the fourteen, fifteen, sixteen year olds. It's just mind-blowing that what goes into it these days and uh, this actually comes back around to the point that I was making earlier if that's the way football goes it's all about the money but it kind of is it is all about the money in European football and and if you can make yourself a name in in Europe you're a name globally whereas if you make yourself a name in South America mm. you're generally just a name in South America and that that's what Gachado will will have to battle if he ever wants to go to Europe and and Jesus to a lesser extent because people particularly in Portugal will know about his record and and his ability in uh, in that country but at the same time it, it doesn't had you heard much about Jorge Jesus before we started working on the on the couple of Tadoras? No, of course. I mean, I think if you're a fan of European football, you, you know who he is. He's got a recognisable face and you, you kind of know that he had some success in, in Portugal. But no, I mean, the, the, you don't know much uh, much about him. No. And uh, and I think I will I will put my hands up and say I, that's something I could have said about a number of the people that we've we've got into following and looking at the backstories over the last 12 months or so working on on the Libertadores and, and keeping a closer eye than I ever have done on South American football. Sure, and it and it gives you that you know you come out with lines such as well I was reading the Paraguayan press the other day, <laughs> and 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 that's that's a great thing for expanding your footballing mind. But there aren't many people in Europe that are ever going to look at the Brazilian or Argentinian press, let alone the Paraguayan press. <laughs> no, I absolutely know what you mean. Uh, let's talk about the let's talk about the Club World Cup then, Ollie. Uh, definitely, that's the name. It is that is definitely the name? The Club that, World Cup. That is confirmation. It's not the Club World Cup Championship. Cup World Tournament <laughs> Championship Cup. It is the Club World Cup, which I actually think is quite it's quite simple, isn't it? Yeah, it rolls the off Club the World tongue Cup. once you know what it is. Yeah, yeah, it is. The, we've got, I can confirm it is the Club World Cup. Uh, and this is, we've said it a million times, I'm going to say it again. This is the holy grail for South American clubs. I know that European clubs and English clubs in the past haven't taken it seriously, but this is for South American clubs. It is the ultimate. And of course, Flamenco beat Liverpool in 1981. Uh, in in the Club World Cup, it was under a different name then, but uh, and they're going to try and do the same on Saturday. Yeah, the semi final against Al Hilal, Oli. 
well, they try first. They try and confuse us by talking about Flamengo's previous success when the competition was under a different name. But we do yeah. have the the name sorted out. Yeah, the the semi final against Al Hilal. Uh, there was a very nice article that was written um, that said that the start of this game reminded them of the start of the Libertadores final with a goal pulled back inside the Flamengo area uh, and Flamengo conceding early on uh, in a game that they were struggling to really start to get going. But that semi-final, the second half, it's like chalk and cheese, the the quality and the, the play from Flamengo. And look, there's one man that took over. <laughs> it's Bruno Enrique. He's the best footballer on that continent right now. And and he's just shown it on a global stage, albeit not in front of Liverpool fans and uh, and the watching European media in that sense, but still in the semi final of this competition. What a performance! Yeah, I mean, I mean, we, we've been raving about him all all year, pretty much early, haven't we? I mean, in the Libertadores, five goals, five assists in the tournament, voted the best player in the tournament. Uh, what, who was the what was the comparison you made earlier about? I can't remember on WhatsApp we were talking about him and his running style or his style. I'm going to track back and find it, but uh, he just has that really unique gait and really, you know, the, the statistics are all there for everyone to see. It's, but I just think he's such an unusual player. The way he moves, he's, he's he's fantastic to watch. I cannot, and we know he went to Wolfsburg, wasn't it? And it didn't work out for him. But I cannot. I know Gabby goal gets the headlines, but come on, someone in Europe needs to drag him. Uh, into a Champions League club, he's that good. He's he's so fun. He's he's loose and languid in his running style, but it's not. He doesn't play loose and languidly. You know, there's purpose to everything he does. You highlighted it before, and not to kind of you know pat your own back too much, Windsor, but you highlighted it before. I think the final and kind of said when we we're talking about he can do everything, and and even his heading ability is is right up there and excellent. I mean, everyone's talking about this Cristiano Ronaldo header against Sampdoria from this week. But Bruno Enrique's header, that's a whipped in ball, admittedly put into the right place. But he's timed his run perfectly and made inch-perfect contact with that header. I mean, that's gone exactly where he wants it to. He's got great elevation, and he's put a bullet header into the back of the net on that. The the all-encompassing quality of his game is something really enjoyable to watch and behold. And once he got going, Flamengo got going. And and he has what two assists and a goal on the night and and drags Flamengo out of the ditch and and gets them into the Club World Cup final. Not on his own was certainly helped, but yeah, a phenomenal performance. The yeah, other... you know what I like. Uh, sorry, Ollie, just just to say quick, just to um, go back to something you said there, and I think it's really important. It's a really simple but really good adjective that doesn't get used enough, I think, in football. And you called him a fun player. And it's it's so underrated that, isn't it? He is. He's fun. He's. I, I heard um, someone described. Have you seen much of Alassane Maximam at Newcastle? No. It's kind of a. They're, they're different players, but he. The only way you can describe Sam Maximam is fun, you know. And and Bruno Enrique, he's a much better player, I think, than than Sam Maximam. But he's just fun. He's just enjoyable to watch, and that football should be fun, and, and it does get lost sometimes. And he's got the efficiency and the statistics and the goals and assists to, to to back it all up, but. If you watch Bruno Enrique and just keep that word in mind, I think, apart from the fact that he has it all, he's just fun and he's great to watch. He he likes to do stuff on his own. He likes to bring teammates involved at the same time and get teammates playing nicely together in, in the in the chemistry and, and fast-flowing football that Flamengo can play. And, and without him, I'm not sure how far this team would have gone this year at times. Not just because he dug them out of a ditch in the semi-final, but there have been a number of performances where, yes, Gabby Goal has taken the goals and the plaudits and and, and has been a, an excellent number nine for them. But Arascaeta, I don't think, would be able to pick up the slack if Bruno Enrique hadn't been fit and healthy for the majority of, of, of that tournament, to be honest, this year. 
and I, and I think it again showed in this. I mean, let's not take anything away from Rafinha as well. He did a really good job, as he likes to do. But still, his his elder age uh, of mm. of getting up and down the right flank, albeit with that scrum cap on, which made him, you know, maybe looks a little bit foolish. But you you know you understand why. And commentators dream though. Oh yeah, no, exactly. You know, if you haven't followed Flamengo, yeah, it's perfect. <laughs> and um, and was up and down as I say that right flank the whole of that second half but in a looked like he was 25 again with mm. the uh, the way he was running uh, but those were the two standouts by a mile and it was a game that Flamengo were expected to win and there was a little bit of stage fright I think I've uh, seen it described yeah, definitely and, and Al-Halal were, were tidy weren't they you know they popped the ball around neatly took the leads a few warning signs yeah I mean uh, Pavatimi Gomez Giovinco there's there are a few elements of quality in that Al-Hilal side. It shouldn't have tested Flamengo as much as it as it did, but they were very fast-paced playing side, much like, and we'll come onto it in a moment, the, the Monterey team that played Liverpool as well. I mean, it's easy to get a blinkered view of world football and think, well, Europeans are the best, South Americans are next, and then everybody else around. I mean, the money that some of these Saudi clubs are now starting to willing to pay some of the players to come is uh, is obviously increasing quite a lot. And uh, and just in general, you've got the globalisation of football means that there are more investments and owners uh, abroad that are willing to stump up a few extra pounds to ensure they get a little bit of quality coming into their side. Yeah, absolutely. And it, and it makes uh, them difficult to play on these situ- situations. We're not going to talk too much about Liverpool, Oli, because this is a Libertadores podcast. We're very much going to focus on Flamengo. But of course, the, the final is Flamengo against Liverpool. From a Liverpool perspective... What are you looking at in that Flamengo side then? I mean, we, you know, I could tell you from my perspective, Pablo Marie is such a great centre-back. The more I watch Flamengo, and I was impressed with Rafinha the other night, and certainly delivery from him and Felipe Luis is outstanding, but they are both 34 years of age. Rodrigo Caio, sometimes I think positionally he doesn't, he doesn't quite know where he is. I think Pablo Marie, the more I watch Flamengo, I think Pablo Marie is so good that he drags the other three of the back four with him. Mm. And I just think if you're Liverpool... Assuming that they play Firmino, Salah and Mane and don't, don't rest and rotate anyone as they did in the semi-final against Monterey. I just think that is where the game is won and lost. Yeah, full strength Liverpool side should be able to deal with this Flamengo side. But what we did see was uh, Jurgen Klopp against Monterey resting a number of people, Origi, Shakiri, and Salah as a front three. And if he does that mm. again, you then think, well... The experienced fullbacks should be able to deal with Shakiri. The Mari and, and Kaio should be able to deal with Origi. I'm not saying it's easy, but you would fancy them more against Origi than Firmino. And yeah. so then it's just Salah, who then... Do you, do you bring in an extra uh, defensive midfielder just to kind of do a bit of a man-marking job, particularly when Salah starts to roam around the place? Is is that become suddenly the job of a William Arau or, or, a, or a Jason at that point? But I would say with this Liverpool side... Look, James Milner's an excellent player. But Flamengo have the width and have the pace in their play. So if you can get down Milner's side and leave him exposed, if Salah gets caught further up the field, if if someone like uh, Oxlade-Chamberlain isn't getting back and supporting, if, if Trent Alexander-Arnold, of course, doesn't play, then you've got an opportunity to perhaps put a bit of pressure on there. I, I don't know. It's hard to think of ways that Liverpool can be beaten when generally their squad across the board is better than Flamengo's. Yeah, I think Virgil van Dijk was missing three illness in the semi-final. If he is out for the final and Jordan Henderson plays at centre-back, I think Gabigol fancies that battle. 
And I think that's the only way maybe Virgil van Dijk doesn't play and, and, and Gabriel can, can just kind of suck Henderson in and leave a little bit of space perhaps for Bruno Enrique could be the only opportunity. And uh, for Liverpool's perspective, I, they've got to go full strength. Come on, it's the Club World Cup final. Uh, they've gone all the way to Qatar. Klopp had the balls to rest players in the semi-final. And I think if that front three play, uh, Bobby Firmino just does what he, he does and, and sort of sits in the pocket and drags Pablo Marie out, then I think Salah and Mane are going to have a, a real run at that uh, the, the three remaining of the four. The nice, the nice thing for the Brazilians is that Liverpool, you know, they come back. They've got a congested fixture list. The moment they get back from this tournament, they've had got Leicester, Leicester away, yeah, and and they've, and they've got tough games. Uh, they've had tough games coming into this tournament. Of course, we all know what happened with them against Villa and basically playing the reserves this week because they were flying out. That they'd already flown out for this competition. You know, they're they're in the middle of a season. Whereas, you know, Jorge Jesus's side. They've got feet. They've had feet up, chance to rest, relax mm. a bit. You know, they've they've got the trophy hall in the bag already. So there may just be some fresher legs as well for the Brazilians, which might tell their toll in the latter part of that game. But what they can't afford to do is start slowly, like they have done in the Libertadores final and in the semi final this week. They cannot afford to concede and go behind against this Liverpool team because if they do that, they'll it will surely be game over. There won't be a miracle comeback like uh, like Gabigol produced once again. In the Libertadores final, I don't think. Yeah, no, I agree with that. I think it's a different level of opposition, and Liverpool get their noses ahead. Then, uh, yeah, then I think it's game over. Um, predictions? Can you see it? Could it happen? I can't. I'll, I'll be a miserable Scrooge humbug sod here, and I'll say that I, I'll Liverpool to win four-one. Put up a big yeah. score. Good. Yeah, they'll just they'll they'll slice through the Brazilians, unfortunately. And that's not like European arrogance, because I'd love to. You know, Windsor, I'd love to back the Brazilians over sure. Liverpool, but yeah. What about yourself? I mean, you, where, you're slightly invested in both camps, really, aren't you? <laughs> well, I, I just think, I think if, if if the way Flamengo play, I think suits Liverpool because they don't, they're not going to sit back. It's not, it's not the the makeup of that eleven. It's not Jorge Jesus's idea. It's not how they won the Libertadores and the league titles. So I think Flamengo really go for Liverpool and. Liverpool against sides like that, they they can pick them off, you know. They um, on the break with that front three and in the transitions, that's where Klopp's found all his success as a manager, really, in those really quick transitions as well as the high press. So, I, I just think the style of Flamengo means that I think Flamengo will score. Actually, Liverpool conceded goals all season, despite how well they've done. But uh, yeah, I, I I can only see a Liverpool win unless Jurgen Klopp does something crazy with the team selection and plays a similar side that he did in the semi-final and, and hopes to sneak it, in which case it's game on. But for all intents and purposes, I think Liverpool lift the trophy. The only way that Liverpool can be beaten is if the if Flamengo kind of set up and take a lot of the ideas that Napoli had from that win in the Champions League earlier yeah. this year. You know, maybe shift things around slightly so it's more of a 4-4-2. So you move uh, the likes of Deres Caeta back a little bit. You have Jason and, uh, and William Aral as the two holding in the... In a, midfield four if you will and have Bruno Enrique just off but not so far deep behind uh, Gabigol to support him whenever they can get forward trouble is you don't have a Manolas or a, or a Koulibaly uh, back there to to be able to be those solid rocks in the defense and, and and deal with what Liverpool bring that's that's what you definitely don't have in, in Flamengo's back line is that real physicality from two centre-backs so no I agree and I just wanted to mention one more thing actually that perhaps hasn't been spoken about too much, is Diego's influence off the bench. You know, we saw it in the Libertadores final where Gabby Goal, of course, gets the headlines. But it was Diego coming on that just changed the dimension of things slightly against River. Just had that added creativity, that added bit of calm. And he came off the bench against Al Halal, of course. Uh, Flamengo turned it around. So that's something to look out for. If Liverpool are a goal up uh, going into the last half hour and Diego comes on, I just think it's, um, it, it's something that Flamengo have got and Jorge Jesus has got in the back pocket. 
Yeah, definitely. Uh, you'd never say that the Flamengo side is lacking quality go, running through it. And uh, Apiris uh, de Mota as well. Diego Vitinho is an excellent player in terms of stretching the play. He's kind of like a mini Bruno Enrique. He's not as accomplished, but he's got pace. There, there are definitely options they can go to. And Diego was an X-factor in that Libertadores final. But again, it, it's then that kind of, you feel a little bit like it's clutching at straws of, well, maybe this could happen or maybe this could happen, you know. Mm. It, I, I think on paper, and we kind of have to look at it as a thing on paper. And I, I, I don't know, you can sometimes go with your heart, but more often or not, your head ends up winning in, in most of these things. And, and I think that's why Liverpool will end up winning in the in the final. Should still be good, though. I mean, what I just want to see is Flamengo for 90 minutes play their attacking style against a team on a big stage. That that'd be yeah. the, that'd be the best thing if we just get an end to end game. Like even if Liverpool score five, as long as they just keep keep going at them and trying to play that style and get a bit of joy, I think it'd be a really really fun watch, Windsor. Yeah, and you know what? Because even though Flamengo won the Libertadores final and Liverpool won the Champions League final, and this of course happens in finals, it's, it's nothing new. But neither side played to anything like their capacity going forward, did they? You know, Liverpool and Spurs was a terrible Champions League final, and Liverpool didn't didn't show up as an attacking force, and Flamengo. Even though it happened for them at the end, they, they didn't show anything like what they've got, um, you know, in terms of fluidity going forwards and stuff. So it'll be really interesting if both sides do do produce something close to what they're capable of, at least going forwards. And it could be, yeah, like it could be a high scoring game and it's definitely worth a watch Def- for a neutral. Definitely so. Uh, what's also worth a watch, Windsor, is probably looking ahead to, uh, well, there's a, there's another Libertadores starting in about three weeks time, isn't it? I mean, <laughs> it comes around pretty damn quickly, doesn't it? Yeah, I think, yeah, it's around about a month, isn't it? Yeah, just over a month. Um, Incredible how quickly it comes around. And the draw, Ollie, no doubt you were up watching it live, uh, reading the Paraguayan press as as the draw came in, yeah? <laughs> oh, oh, they were they were going off about some of the, the, the draws for Libertad and, and Olympia as well. I mean, <laughs> yeah, it, it was a phenomenal read. If I can, I'll put some links out on Twitter to uh, my favourite Paraguayan papers if, you, if you'd like. <laughs> but yeah, no... Um, it was actually, it's quite interesting when you do get sucked into these sorts of tournaments that, it, it, I mean, it's considered niche at the end of the day, isn't it? We are we are operating on a, on a niche market at times, but it, it's kind of fun to think, oh, first thing you wake up in the morning and you mm. think, what was the Libertadores draw? That might not have come into my mind at all last this time last year, but... I felt like it was Christmas Day. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> no, but I do know exactly what you mean, Ollie. It's funny because I, I did wake up as because the draw was pretty... Um, yeah, I think it was about midnight uh, sort of European time, wasn't it? About 11 or midnight European time. Mm. So, uh, And I texted you, I think I texted you very early in the morning saying, Flamengo, Independiente del Valle, that's the, that's, that's the pick of the games. And, you know, yeah, it was, um, I looked at that, that that was the one that that jumped off the page at me, I think. Yeah, I mean, definitely uh, my immediate reply to that is the Group D. But look, let's run into these uh, groups and have a quick look, shall we? Just a very brief rundown of of the, what, eight groups that we've got in the Libertadores for next year. Uh, Flamengo, Independiente del Valle, Junior of Colombia, and then another another team to be decided in Group A. Palmeiras, Bolivar, and Tigre and B with another team to be decided. Peñarol, Colo Colo, Atletico Paranaense, and uh, the Bolivian second team uh, in Group C. River Plate, Sao Paulo, Liga de Quito, and B Nacional in Group D. Gremio, Universidad Católica, American de Cali, and another one of the qualifiers in Group E. Group F is Nacional, Racing Club, Alianza Lima, and Estudiantes. Group G is Olympia, Santos, Delfin, and Defensory Justica. And Group H is Boca Juniors, Libertad, Caracas, and a qualifier to be decided. And for me, it is Group D that stands out as the strongest group with River Plate, Sao Paulo, and Liga de Quito, and B Nacional. Because you've got a little bit of everything. 
You've got the rookies at the tournament with Binacional. You've got the altitude with Liga de Quito. And then you've got a big side from Argentina and from Brazil. Yeah, I think um, yeah, I think that's a tricky group for River, isn't it? I mean, that's, that's, that's a group they would not have wanted. Um, I, I saw uh, Golasso was talking uh, on his blog about the altitude factor, and it's certainly something that, that, that comes into play uh, with Liga de Quito and Binacional as well, and, and Sao Paulo, a big club. So that that's tricky for Cachado and River. Yeah, and, uh, and, and Sao Paulo are wanting to kind of make amends for... Uh, everyone's trying to catch up with Flamengo in Brazilian football anyway, and Sao Paulo not being in the competition this year. I mean... Just quickly, the Brazilian league this year, I don't know how you, you can follow that as a football fan. Because Cruzeiro, when we were covering Libertadores, were one of the best sides to watch in the group stage, one of the highest scorers in the group stage. They get relegated this year, obviously, in the in the domestic league. Internacional, again, a great side to watch in the Libertadores this year, but they don't make the Copa Lib this year at all out of the, yeah. uh, out the top six that go in. I, I don't know how you can follow that as a fan and see... It's equivalent to Birmingham winning the League Cup and then being relegated in this country, except on a much grander scale with someone like Cruzeiro. It's yeah, I yeah, I guess the it, it's just the transients of South American football, isn't it? If we think European football changes quickly, then uh, then in South America can can double down on that really. And does that make it better because you can't predict a top four or anything like that in any way, shape, or form? Do you think does it, does it make it more exciting, more interesting to follow? I think it does. It, it, listen, in a European world where Bayern Munich and, and Juve have both won, what is it, eight straight, nine straight titles, you know, so seven or eight titles, that, you know, on the bounce in their league. So it's, uh, yeah, I think I think that, that kind of variety can only be good, can only be good, I think. The, the way it happens with players and squads just being sucked so quickly of their talent is, mm. is, not, is not great if you've got an affiliation with those clubs. But from an overall neutral perspective, um, you know, that diversity is really interesting. Um, you mentioned as well, by the way, the uh, Flamengo Independiente del Valle clash. The winners. Oh, come on, that's the that's the pick. Yeah, the winners of the Libertadores taking on the winners of the Copa Sudamericana. And the only thing is, I fear for Independiente del Valle because you know there's going to be a, a fair bit of player turnover before that first group game comes around in March. And and they are they're not new to the tournament. Obviously, they made the final in 2016, but it's a different side, completely different side. And it will probably be a very different side to the one that won the Copper Sud. If if Miguel Angel Ramirez can have the same style of football that they played throughout the latter part of the Copper Sud Americana, it's going to be great to watch because they're probably the side that play the most similar style to, of football as Flamengo do, except they probably utilise the flanks a bit more, perhaps more like um, like M uh, Liga de Quito did, or we thought they were going to do against Boca in the knockout stages last year, and it never really came to fruition in the end. But but Flamengo should, again, it's one that you look at right now and you think Flamengo should do them quite comfortably and probably get through that group. Although, you know, I keep reading things about Junior and how they underperform massively, of course, in the Libertadores this year in the group stage and how there's a high expectation for them to go back and do something far better in this year's competition aside from Colombia. Yeah, absolutely. And they were really dark horses, weren't they? Early? You know, I remember reading prior to the tournament and um, just, you know, before the group stages about how people really backed Junior to do something and it, it didn't happen. Just when you said Flamengo obviously will be favourites in that game against Independiente del Valle, you've got to look at it. And Flamengo, they're, they're red-hot favourites to, to, to win back-to-back -back Libertadores titles, surely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you definitely... Uh, well, depending on what happens, though. I mean, if Jorge Jesus does end up walking out, then, then the, that's the a, players. The players are all still there. The players are there, but will they? Will a new manager come in and and 
want to change a style, want to move it to their system. I mean, you could easily end up getting a, a new boss that comes in, like a, a Scolari that isn't as open in his style of football. You know, Jesus, that's the one thing that I do give him a lot of credit for is the, the way he's changed the style of football at Flamengo. And I'm sure the board and, and the owners would want to keep it that way. But at the same time, you can't replace managers like for like. Otherwise, you know, football would be really boring, I guess. So- yeah, and there's also, there's also the, you know, we, we, we've spoken about Flamengo being trendsetters and, and shifting the plates a little bit in Brazilian football that's been pretty defensive in the last, you know, half a decade or so. And if Palmeiras and, uh, you know, Sao Paulo and Gremio and, and Santos and others want to catch up with that style of Flamengo it's it, you don't feel like it can happen overnight really you know especially Palmeiras was such a defensive squad and defensive style if, if they're gonna shift that it might take a, a year or two there might not many clubs will be able I don't think to to produce such rapid success as Flamengo did and, and there may still be players that get put in the shop window in this uh, club world cup and people start having a look at it and think yeah we We'd like to bring Rafinha back to European football. We'd like to bring Felipe Luis back to European football. We'd take a chance again on a Bruno Enrique. And and because the money just still isn't quite there in, in Brazilian football, even though Flamengo do have a lot of it, it's not the same as European financial status. And, and, and some of these players will be keen to test themselves again on the European stage as well. So I think, I think they can lose anyone except Bruno Enrique. I think everyone in that Flamengo squad, whilst it's a really talented group, I think... I think they're all replaceable, including Gabby Goal, because I think you can find goal scorers in South America. But Bruno Enrique is the one. If a European club offers twenty million, then then he's gone, isn't he? Yeah, yeah, and uh, and and he'd be pushing to get that done as well. I imagine. You'd think so. Again, but he looks pretty. You know, he looks pretty happy there. Yeah, he is. He is. A, well, he's certainly playing some excellent football right now. But you would have thought again. You can never know about personal ambition, so it's difficult to say. But you would have thought that if the money was right, and the opportunity at the right club was there. Then I mean, imagine if Everton this winter put in a bid for Bruno Enrique to come in and galvanise the side under Ancelotti. That'd be a tough one to turn down. Mm. To work with Ancelotti, to play on Merseyside, I mean... Be- and also, he's he's 28, I think, Bruno Enrique. So it's it's, na- it's now or never, isn't it? Yeah, he's in his pomp. In his pomp. Ayoro nunca. Yeah. And so he's got it. If he wants to go back to Europe and and right the wrong of not succeeding on that continent the first time, then then it's, it's got to happen now because no one buys a 30-year-old South American. Yeah. Boca have had a nice draw in this uh, group stage with Libertad Caracas and, uh, and one of the qualifiers. You, they will be favourites to go through, and I'm sure we'll hear from Nico at some point next year about all of that. Uh, Gremio, again, you would expect them to go through against Universidad Católica, America de Cali, and then a, another one to be decided. There's kind of a... Um, an interesting group with uh, Peñarol, Colo Colo, Atletico Paranaense and the next Bolivian side. Bolivian teams are kind of considered the the whipping boys per se on the continent. It was a very interesting conversation I've heard about how Bolivians in general just aren't as physically dominant in their in their stature. Sure. Bolivians are, are generally born as shorter, uh, not as as chunky kind of players. Yeah, which makes it really hard now in this modern day era of football to compete on the continental stage. But Peñarol, big side, Colo Colo, relatively big side, and Atletico Paranaense. Again, you can you can lose a fairly sizable name coming out of that group potentially. We might go down to another Peñarol against the uh, Atletico Paranaense in a final group game for the deciders we had against Flamengo last year. Yeah, because that was the pick of the groups last year, wasn't it? When you had uh, Flamengo, Liga de Quito and Peñarol, as you mentioned. And that was a really, really exciting group. And I think for, from a non... If you're not in South America as well and you're European, there aren't 
you know, Peñarol is a club you've heard of. You might not know exactly, but I think it is a club you've heard of. It's got, I just love the history of Uruguayan football and the success that the Uruguayan clubs had right at the start of the Libertadores. And I think it'd be amazing if if, uh, if Peñarol managed to get out the group and, and do something in the knockout stages. I know it hasn't happened really in recent years, but uh, that would be great. And yeah, certainly an interesting group. Uh, just lastly on the Libertadores draw then, because this is on uh, the running order, Gachado to stay Windsor and be there for next year. Yeah, I mean, he'd... People said he would leave after beating Boca in Madrid in the Super Classico final. That looked to be the absolute ultimate achievement as a River coach. He stayed for another year. He reached another Libertadores final, lost, of course, to Flamenco, just won the Copa Argentina and still very much in contention to win the Argentine Superliga for the first time. That's still very much a, a possibility for River. I, it, it is bizarre, Ollie, every time we're on the pod, we sort of link Gachado or we, we talk about links that have been... Uh, Gachado to to European clubs and yet he's still at River he's got a contract uh, maybe I, I don't know I, I, we're at the point now where I just don't know what's going on inside Marcelo Gachado's brain I don't know how much he wants to do whether he's maybe he's absolutely adamant that he needs to win the Superliga to complete the set and then move on uh maybe he's a little bit scared of the jump I don't I, I really don't know um I I can't believe the fact that he it looks like he's going to stay for another year uh, but I'm delighted by it as well because South America needs Gachado more than Gachado needs South America at this point. Yeah, and I think uh, from a selfish point of view, I think we'd both like to be covering this tournament again, fingers crossed, and uh, and covering it with an eye on Gachado, watching him do what he does on that on that stage in South America. Um, yeah, there might be a protectionist sort of attitude around the, the aura he's built around himself. He may now feel because he was so close and yet so far that there's now a job to be done. Which, yeah. which may have just, you know, winning, uh, losing that Libertadores final in the manner they did. He may think, right, well, when he's a perfectionist by all <laughs> accounts, so you can't really believe he's going to take River to a fourth Libertadores final in six years, can he? Uh, why, I mean, why I, wouldn't you if you've done it? You've, you've done it three so, yeah. times in five. I mean, he's just lost Palacios, yeah, to Leverkusen. I mean, I know that brings money for the club, balances the books. My God, the Monumental could do with a lick of paint. But uh, <laughs> It's not I, the biggest I, loss. It's not the biggest loss that they could have suffered in that. No, they could have lost uh, Ignacio Fernandez or, yeah, I agree, or, or Nico de la Cruz. I mean, Palacios is a, is a very good player. I personally, and other people have seen a lot more of him than I have, Ollie. but I'd be surprised if he finds a level above like a mid, like a Leverkusen. I think that is, might be a really good move for him, a really good level. I'll be hugely surprised if you see him tearing him up, tearing it up for Arsenal or Real Madrid or anything like that. Mm. Um, in in five years' time, I well, I think Leverkusen's probably his level, but um, yeah, Gashada. I don't. I mean, I hope he stays. Also, uh, it's something that we're all guilty of when you talk about player transfers and manager transfers. You never really see them as human. You know, you never know what's going on with someone's family status, with their kids, with their um, husbands or wives or whatever. You, you never really you never really think about it, do you, Oli? And I know that Gashado just, uh, you know, he's, he's got four kids and one of which is very, very young. And I think it's something journalists are always really guilty of, of saying, oh, why, why doesn't he make that move? Or why doesn't he go there or there? But you, you don't know what's going on in people's personal lives. And I think it's always important to factor that in. Yeah, certainly. Isn't he got uh, one of his sons is in the youth teams as well? Yeah, River. exactly. Yeah, so... so Although Marissa, you know, he may, maybe maybe he promised his wife that he'd, he'd stay in Buenos Aires for another year or two. I, I really, you know, I'm just guessing. I, I wouldn't want to guess about his personal life, but uh, <laughs> maybe there's maybe there's factors that we we don't know. Oh, without a doubt, I think there are many factors that, especially you and I, are not privy to when it comes to uh, Gashada. Or, or maybe he's <laughs> maybe he's going to into into Miami. 
Oh well, uh, yeah, that was one you floated about before the final, which is, um, yeah, still there. I, I'm, I managed to convince a very, a very big Arsenal fan that Gashado would actually be one of the best people to come in and work on uh, on the job that needs to be done at Arsenal uh, over mm. about a ten minute conversation. It didn't take much, to be honest, because I think a lot of Arsenal fans would take anybody but Arteta, and uh, as as would the players by all accounts. But I. It, it's an easy sell. Gashado is a very easy sell to a lot of football fans once they're willing to listen. But he doesn't speak English. I mean, I, I read, nobody really knows. I've never seen an interview conducted with him in English. I, was, I read the other day that someone said he doesn't speak English. What that means, I don't know. Again, maybe he's secretly learning English for three hours a week, Ollie, on the side, and, you know, he'll conduct a, a press conference in, in perfect English. I don't know. Well, he but... just seems like the kind of guy that would probably have that side hustle going as well, you know. Yeah, I mean, he's obviously got an incredibly high football IQ. And, you know, as a player, he, he played in the MLS. He played in France, speaks French. So, uh, you know, you, you believe that he's got to have some level of English. Elsewhere on the other side of the city? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, down in La Boca. Uh, well, I mean, it's all changed and, and it had to be, Oli. Uh, should, we, should we tee up Nico now? Nico, uh, our Boca correspondent. We'll try and make sense, really, of the fact that Juan Roman Raquelme is now the... Is it the new vice president or the vice vice president? Uh, I, he it's... is the vice second vice president. Right. Uh, on the list. Yeah, Clear as mud. Yeah. I, I mean, he seems to also just be given a role that he's second vice vice president, but also director of everything to do with football at the whole club. <laughs> it's how I've also yeah. read it in the press. Like He is just going to be in charge of the ins and outs of the reserve team, the youth team, the first team and how they they approach for playing football. And yeah, I think um, politics and football in South America is, is so intrinsically linked. And this, this Raquel May Boca story, you know, I don't know how closely you followed it, but I followed it a little bit at the start and it was just, it's so complex and it's so layered that I kind of lost, not lost interest because it's, it's really fascinating, but lost a, a, an understanding of exactly what was going on. There were so many mixed messages. But one thing I think you'd have to say is completely clear is Boca needed a big change. The way that Boca played, not even the result, the way they played against River in that second leg um, at La Bomba, you know, the way they played against River really throughout 2019 in the numerous games they played just suggests that that gulf is too big with your arch rivals. Mm. And they needed huge change. And I guess that comes from the top down and... Juan Roman Raquelme is, is now in and looks as though Alfaro is out and um, perhaps Miguel Russo is going to be the new boss. So it's it's a new direction and a fresh start. Let's see what uh, what Boca correspondent Nico had to say about the uh, the new faces that are coming into Boca. Okay, okay. What can I say about Juan Roman Riquelme? With the ball in his foot, the best player ever, really. Is in the select place where you can find players like Zidane, Messi, Maradona, Ronaldinho, uh, in these elite of players. But without the ball, oh yeah, yeah, so complicated this guy. Is my is the maximum idol for all of us, but. Uh, if if we if we can have like if, like uh, if you check all the history about this player in different teams, always he has conflict with the managers, 
um, coach, uh, different problems with the president, with the owner of the club. So he's not the easygoing guy, you know, like in terms, and now he's not the player who is running for his own business, you know, it's like he's running for an entire team, for an entire club. So, from well, it's it, it's it's so complicated now to have like a like opinion about um, about this situation because he's only have less than a month in charge of the second vice president of Boca Juniors. But uh, if you check all this history about him and how he managed this situation uh, with, as I mentioned before, with the president, coach, everything is not the easy, easy going guy. So I'm here, you have to put all your ambitions for one side and focus on the team, on the club. So the first thing he already did was just to remove all the coach and directives from, uh, from the youth uh, categories. So in terms of that, it's, it's understandable because you come with your, your own team, but I think you have to do it like little by little. And he already removed like in one shot, pretty much like the 75% of the, this, uh, this, uh, these people who was in charge of the youth category. So in terms of that, you had to go step by step, you know. Also, I think he's planning the same way with the with the for the the first team. No, already Alfaro is not anymore the manager of, of Boca Juniors. He's not the coach anymore. So, I think uh, uh, he already uh, Alfaro was give a, gave a little signals about that. He doesn't want to be anymore in this charge. But but um, I think also. The last, um, the last move, you know, just to push uh, Alfaro away from the the first team, was this this uh, Riquelme won the election, no? Uh, and I hope uh, this is not uh, continue with um, with the players, no? Because uh, we had to repeat the team. We have. We only need like two or three players more, no more than that, just for a specific position. For example, we need the number nine. We need a forward. We need the number five, someone who control the middle, and that's it. Because the goalkeeper is fine, is perfect. The two centrals are fantastic. Probably for the size, the number three and the number four, probably as well. We have to fix this area as well, but. It's just a little details. I think we had to keep the base of the last lineup to for this uh, season. And I think uh, Riquelme doesn't have this idea. So he thinks uh, he really wants to make a lot of changes in the team. So um, this is something in the last years it didn't work very well. Well, you we can see how many times we change the lineup um, and the players, and that's that's the consequences we we never won the, in the last years, in the last 15 years. 
uh, Libertadores Cup, an international cup like that. And also Russo, the new manager looks like he's gonna be the, the new looks like he's gonna be the new manager of Boca Juniors. So also I'm not very agree with that because the only way he won that Libertadores Cup in in 2007 was because he had a Riquelme on fire. He was the best performance of that of that uh, of that team when when he was playing. So you know, even me, I can I can manage this team and say, Roman, do whatever you want. You know what it had to do, and that's where he happened. And this is the kind of of uh, of thing Riquelme is gonna do. Of course, Riquelme with the ball in his foot. But it's completely, we will see what happened, Riquelme as a manager, was a vice president. So it's so premature to have like analyze what, what I expect or what I, what I think is going to be um, this new season with, uh, with Riquelme as a vice president. But I, my point of view from this, in this moment, is not the most optimistic. We will see. I hope Roman close my mouth and says, "Dude, did you see? I'm I'm good with the ball in my feet as much as I'm uh, as I'm a directive, you know. So we will see what happened in this season. So, but Boca Juniors is for above everything, above the maximum idols. So I hope." Uh, Riquelme understood that part and removed his own ambitions and, and going for the best for our team. So a happy man to an extent that, you know, it's an idol of the club. This is what also troubles me about the whole thing, though, is that you're putting a big face and a big name and a beloved name and you're getting you're getting emotions involved in how to run a business, a football club, I suppose it's not quite a business in the same way as it is in Europe, but a football club, the the tactics, the, the training, the, yeah, the style. Welcome to football. Isn't that isn't that what it is? <laughs> you know, like as in Arteta's just about to be given the Arsenal job. He's never been a head coach in his life. I don't know. Is is that just what football is? Um, you know, pe- people get blinded, and you know, I don't. What Juan Roman Riquelme's qualifications to to kind of run the club? I have no idea. Apart from being a a Boca legend, it's something that just refuses to go away. Big football clubs, big institutions hiring you know famous faces from their well, past. Well, Bayern Munich do fingers. it all all the time, don't yeah. they? They they have yeah, basically yeah. a whole back backroom staff that is made up of legends of the club and, and ex players, including even Di Michelis is in charge of uh, coaching the youth team and things like that. I mean. Uh, yeah, it happens all the time, but I think the difference is is because it's kind of so political as well. Like, do you not mm. think that uh, Jorge Amor Amiel has has put Raquel May on the ticket with him because it's like that's guaranteed votes? Yeah, you know the, the uh, yeah of the, course. But then you know he was up against you know Diego Maradona was involved. And is it, yeah, I mean uh, you know in terms of in opposition. So yeah, I. That that was kind of interesting, actually, the Maradona versus Raquel May aspect of it, mm. because it, it almost sounded like you know you could wade through the number of stories coming out around the presidential elections, and you wouldn't hear 
a single word almost about uh, Jorge Amor Amiel or any of the other presidential candidates. But what you would yeah. hear is it's Raquel May against Maradona. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like it was a one-on-one showdown between just those two, which again just shows how putting them on your ticket blindsided everybody, including the press almost, from, from what actually is going on with the presidential candidates. Sure. So, and it's also, yeah, it's also important to say that, you know, if if you don't follow Boca and South American football, you think, oh, Maradona a, was a better player than uh, Raquel May, of course, and yeah, obviously. But, it, you know, he, Raquel May is a Boca legend and, and, and Maradona isn't really a Boca legend. He was only there briefly. So, and what Raquel May did for Boca was, was astonishing. So, you know, there, there's that as well. And But Boca needed a fresh start and they got it. And they got, as you said, a pretty comfortable group, I think, of the Libertadores. So 2020 is a big year for Boca. This this river dominance, it, it, it cannot go on, I think, from a Boca perspective. Yeah, and uh, and I think removing Alfaro is that negative style of football. However, yeah, su- successful to an extent, but mm. something needs to change in the way they play football. And maybe maybe Raquel May with his ideas will, will do that. But yeah, it's going to... Yeah, and, and it- you know, Nico saying as well, as you alluded to, Ollie, that he's kind of straight away, he's he's stripped all the coaches from the youth teams and he's going to start again there. It's quite clinical. Yeah, it's, <laughs> look, it's it's big, bold and it's brash, but isn't that a lot it's of what South we America. can sometimes see in South American and Argentinian football? And yeah. actually, it's the fruits of those labours that we will uh, we will make judgment on rather than the labours themselves, I think. Yeah, I mean, devil's in the detail and... Uh, yeah, we'll see how it all unravels. Look, it's a it's a clean slate for Boca, and um, yeah, as you say, they've got to do something to close the gap between them and River, and and they will be expected. There's always the expectation, as Nico has told us many a time, to win every game and to make Libertadores finals and win those. So, it's not exactly going to be an easy life for whoever is in the dugout at uh, at La Bombonera going into the start of the Libertadores next year. Whoever it is, the expectation is always going to be, well, win it. Doesn't matter whether it's Miguel Angel Russo, who, whose managerial pedigree, by the way, stretches back a long time. But I'm pretty sure he's managed every club in Argentina. <laughs> yeah, I was just looking at his... Um, I was looking at prior to this pod, I was looking at his, his um, list of teams managed, and yeah, it was, it's absolutely huge. It's also, if you want a fresh start, I think he's 63. I know he won the Libertadores <laughs> with Boca in 2007. But if you want a really fresh start, he's, he's that... I don't know. It's you know. It's it's not like bringing in the, either the European ideas or giving a fresh young guy an opportunity to to work something. That's for sure. But uh, Boca, I'm sure. I'm sure the club has a plan, right? <laughs> <laughs> Big thanks to Nico and to Andy Brassel for contributing to the show this week. Very much appreciated indeed. Big thanks to everybody who's contributed throughout the whole of the 2019 Libertadores, including Pedro, of course, including Joel Richards and Peter Coates and uh, anybody else whose voice has been used down the lines. It's been really good to do this for the entirety of the tournament. You can follow us and find our back episodes on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Anchor.fm, our host, Spotify, and more. Just search Wilson and Windsor Libertadores podcast. You can email us at, at will, uh, willwinpodcast at gmail.com. That's willwinpodcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter. Windsor is at David T. Windsor. It's David T. Windsor. Myself, O underscore J underscore Wilson. That's O underscore J underscore Wilson. Joel Richards at Joel underscore Richards. And Peter Coates at Golazo Argentino. That's at Golazo Argentino. Use hashtag Libertadores pod to send us your questions via Twitter. And until 2020, the group stage is set. 
champing at the bit to get into Libertadores next year. We'll hopefully see you then. Take care.